This episode is brought to you in part by The Table Podcast from the Hendricks Center at Dallas Theological Seminary. I'm Daryl Bach, one of the hosts, and I invite you to join us as we discuss issues of God and culture, which includes anything and everything. Listen on your podcast app or at dts.edu slash the table. You're listening to Quick to Listen. Each week we go beyond hashtags and hot takes to discuss a major cultural event. I'm Morgan Lee. I'm an associate digital media producer here at Christianity Today. And today I am joined by Andy Olson, who is our managing editor. Hi, Morgan. Hey, how are you, Andy? I'm well. How are you? Great. Yeah. I can't tell if you're more or less excited than Mark usually is to be on the show. Well, Mark has big shoes to fill, so I'm doing my best uh, to imitate him today. All right. I don't think you need to imitate him. Just be yourself. Fantastic. People might even be happy to have a break from Mark. We'll ask. (laughs) All right. Who's joining us today? Today we're joined uh, by a professor and a friend, Steve Offit. Steve is an associate professor of development studies at Asbury Theological Seminary in Kentucky. His research has focused on, among many other things, global Christianity and poverty. Uh, And and recently uh, he's retained a focus on Latin America uh, uh, partly because beyond his research, he he uh, worked for a number of years in development and missions uh, in Latin America and in South Africa. His work has touched on a broad range of topics from human rights to remittances, which is money that uh, that folks here send back uh, to their countries of origin abroad. Uh, so he's a graduate of Wheaton College and Johns Hopkins University and Boston University. He's he's covered uh, the country geographically, uh, and we're delighted to have him here to talk with us this morning. Hey, Steve. Hey, how's it going? Steve, it sounds from like from what Andy just read that you travel a decent amount. So ironically, you're actually joining us in the office, but you do travel. Is that true? That's very true. In fact, I'll be headed to El Salvador on Saturday. So I'm happy to kind of catch you here in Wheaton and uh, really pleased to be with you. Awesome. Well, we're glad you're here too. And hopefully this travel comes up more in our conversation, which we can get into right now. So in 2001, a 7.7 earthquake struck El Salvador, killing nearly 1,000 people. In the wake of the humanitarian disaster triggered by this earthquake, the United States welcomed nearly 200,000 Salvadorians to live and work legally. And it also allowed those that were already in the country illegally to enjoy or at least apply for the same privileges. For more than 15 years, this population has existed under temporary protected status. But this week, the Trump administration announced that this program will end in the fall of 2019. An end to this program will likely have critical ramifications for Salvadorian Christians in the United States and also in El Salvador. About 50% of Salvadorians are Catholic and a third Protestant and SCT. A.K. Andy, noted last year in a piece for CT, many Salvadorian Christian communities in the United States frequently send money to support churches and ministries in their home countries. Those in ministry in El Salvador are often in a vulnerable position. The country is one of the most violent countries in the world, and also as noted in the story, pastors and religious leaders have been kidnapped or extorted by gangs at various times. In recent years, thousands of children from El Salvador and surrounding countries have crossed the U.S. border in an effort to escape the violence. This week on Quick to Listen, we'll discuss how the end of the program will affect the Salvadorian and American church. All right, I'm really looking forward to our discussion today. Before that, again, I always just want to remind people that this program is made possible by everyone who subscribes to Christianity Today magazine. And it's cool that we have Andy in here today because he's actually the person who runs the magazine and makes it all possible. That's kind of you to say, Morgan. 
It's true, right? Like that's literally why they hired you. We stopped publishing for like five months while you weren't here. That is a that is an untruth. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, what do you want to brag about in the January February issue that's out right now? You know, we got a lot of good uh, stuff in this issue. It's a uh, kind of a smorgasbord, but. One of my favorite pieces is actually one of the shortest pieces by uh, one of our newer columnists, Sandra McCracken. She writes a piece on the value of vulnerable and honest prayer, sort of stream of consciousness, no filter prayer, uh, which I resonate personally with because uh, I find myself praying that way often when I'm by myself. uh, And uh, it's a good read. And I, I like the way she thinks. So I enjoyed that one. What is the name of the column? Oh, Sandra's column is called Pending Resolution. Cool. And some people may recognize Sandra McCracken's names because she's also a pretty acclaimed musician. Indeed. Indeed she is. This is a kind of her foray into prose. So if people enjoy her music or really resonate with what Andy was just saying, again, you can read this article by going to orderct.com slash quick to listen and getting a subscription because as people may know, all our magazine content is pretty much only available subscription only. Also, you can, you can get the magazine in real life form. And it, like I said earlier, because we did stuff that was in the South Pole, it's totally worth it to get this one in your mailbox. So Andy, I know that you may not have done this before. As um, host, this is my first time hosting, co-hosting a CT well, podcast. Well, in, in particular, this particular segment that we have on the show, but we always have a gut check, um, which is when we give kind of just like how we feel about the news that's announced. So I'm curious, Andy, when you heard about the Trump administration's decision to end this temporary protected status, what were the initial feelings that you had? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, it wasn't entirely unexpected, right? Uh, the Trump administration announced the end of temporary protected status, or TPS as it's known, uh, for Haitians uh, not too long ago. This decision was somewhat anticipated, and communities are eagerly awaiting an a announcement about a similar decision uh, for the for the Honduran immigrant community. So in that sense, it, w- it sort of felt uh, like it was coming. I personally, I have a number of uh, Salvadoran friends, so uh, my heart is is definitely with them uh, for sure. And I fully recognize the complexities on both the side of policymakers. They have to they have to figure this out, and uh, how these sorts of decisions truly do deeply affect families and communities. I would say that my gut check was like both wow and. I guess I should have seen this coming, except for the fact that the Trump administration's decisions on different groups that are here, different immigrant communities, so Iraqi Christians and Indonesian Christians, we've written about them at various times in CT, and it has exposed my ignorance about the immigration system. So I actually didn't know that most or that many Salvadorians were here under this particular status and until I wrote an article last year about Indonesian Christians who were deported last year because this kind of had come to an end. I didn't even know this was kind of like an arrangement that people were given. And so that was kind of my reaction to was like, oh, wow. I didn't know this had such sweeping ramifications that was here. All right, Steve, we have a bunch of questions for you. Before we pepper you with them, though, Andy, um, maybe you could just explain to us really quickly the wonky definition for temporary protected status. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's, uh, this is very risky. I am not an immigration attorney, nor have I ever played one. Um, but in, in my uh, reporting over the years on, on this on these issues, I've learned a little bit. So temporary protected status or TPS is a little it's a, it's a little odd because uh, it is 
it is effectively granted as a sort of uh, someone will surely take issue with my with my description, but it's a effectively granted granted as a sort of emergency relief to certain groups of people for whom uh, returning back to their countries of origins would present sort of an immediate risk. Uh, so it's often granted uh, after natural disasters, in the case of El Salvador, or uh, Hurricane Mitch, in the case of uh, Guatemalans and other Central Americans. They also, this also uh, qualified them for TPS. Uh, TPS is it's actually a it's a it's a legal way to be in the country. So people who are under this status, they regularly check in with the government. It has to be renewed every couple of years, de- depending on which TPS you sort of came in under. So uh, these someone who maintains this status is regularly making the government aware of uh, that they're here. Uh, they can work uh, through work permits legally uh, and earn an income. And it is, by definition, temporary. So uh, the government makes no promises that this status will be extended indefinitely. And in fact, it does not offer any sort of clear pathway to a green card or to citizenship. Critics would say that it is generally, it's a little bit of a misnomer because uh, it's temporary in name only. Once once you grant TPS to a group of hundreds of thousands of people, uh, it becomes really difficult to ever uh, sort of rescind that or, or somehow get them back to their countries of origin. So that is in fact kind of true about it for sure. Awesome. So we're going to move to El Salvador to avoid this becoming an immigration podcast, but I'm yes. glad that you Back- cleared that Helpful up. background only. Absolutely. All right. So, Steve, you know, the Trump administration said that it's ending the program because the reason that the program existed in the first place, a.k.a. this destruction from the earthquake, is no longer applicable. What is the situation currently like in El Salvador? So I was in El Salvador in 2001 when the earthquakes hit and they were disastrous. In in the in the wake of those disasters, churches, evangelical churches were among the first to respond to those uh, problems. Uh, local churches finding ways to help people who were affected by those disasters. Now we're, you know, we're in 2018, so we're 17 years on and the country has in fact largely recovered from those earthquakes. Uh, the Trump administration on that point, I think, is absolutely correct. What's not being taken into account is the fact that El Salvador is still a place that's dangerous. The U.S. State Department has a level three travel advisory, uh, three out of four. Uh, It asks U.S. citizens to consider not going to El Salvador, uh, if that's possible. There are colleges, Christian colleges, that are decided not to send students on mission trips and other Uh, study abroad programs to El Salvador because they're concerned about their students uh, in this context. The problems are gang-related, crime-related, violence-related. The country simply isn't able to govern effectively to solve these kinds of social problems that puts everyone in danger. So a lot of it is gang violence then? Correct, yes. They're Numbers are difficult to really come by, but there's at least 60,000 gang members in El Salvador, and there's only 6 million people in El Salvador. So that's a pretty high percentage of the population. In any barrio that you go into, any community, any neighborhood, there's going to be probably two gangs, and they're going to be fighting each other for territory, two or more gangs. Uh, and that creates uh, all kinds of insecurities. I was in El Salvador in November, and I went with an Assemblies of God pastor to a community, and he took me to talk to a young man who had just had his hand cut off because he ventured into the opposing gang's neighborhood. Um, and so that's the kind of experiences people have on a day-to-day basis there. Steve, I was um, remembering, you and I were talking a while ago, and uh, something that struck me was we were 
we were talking, there was a, a time when uh, it was at least thought that evangelical pastors were somewhat shielded from violence and threats from gangs, but it's maybe my understanding now that even that has shifted and changed. Is that something that you have seen and experienced? Yes. So I think we should focus a little bit on the good news that evangelical churches have for these communities. And a, a scholar and a Christian named Bob Brenneman uh, has, a, has a blog, and he has a book called Homies and Hermanos. And he talks about how evangelicals can provide pathways out of gangs for young men when normally those pathways are closed. Once you're in a gang, you're in it until death, really. Uh, but Gangs respect churches in many communities, and they allow people to leave. But that's not the whole story of the relationship between gangs and evangelicals. Pastors are threatened. Christian schools and churches sometimes have to pay rent to the gangs. I talked to the brother of a pastor who pulled up his, his shirt and showed me a bullet hole uh, in his side uh, where he had been shot by a gang member. So they're often victims of gangs. They're often under surveillance by gangs. They're often told where and when they can go, where they can work, uh, and how much money, if they have a small business, they have to pay the gang who is controlling that territory. So just to be clear, this is because these people live in El Salvador, or this is because they are churches, or they're, sorry, that they are Christians? Because they live in El Salvador. Okay. This is normal life for a Salvadoran and evangelicals are not exempt, even though evangelical churches can provide ways for gang members to leave gangs. What to, So you've said that they provide ways for people to leave gangs. Have you seen churches also confronting this violence? What pastors and churches can do is they can go to bat for specific people in communities. Um, I had a, a Pentecostal pastor tell me about a time when he was able to go to a gang member and say, hey, we have a, a person who was in your gang and who's now in our church, and we know that um, he did something that the gang is going to kill him for. We would like to step in and solve that problem so that he doesn't have to pay that penalty. And to make a long story short, they were able to pay money so that the young man was only beaten instead of killed. And so sometimes these are dyna the dynamics where they can stand up and stand between uh, an act of violence toward a person. But uh, a pastor told me that they encourage members of their churches to pay rent to the gang. And they told me that be that's because it's biblical. We have a model where you give unto Caesar what is Caesar's. And that's a, an accession to the, to the reality that gangs actually are the governing bodies of these communities. Um, the police do not have the final control in these communities, and the churches are actually acknowledging that. So they do not, no, they do not try to stand up to the gang and say, no, we control these communities. They acknowledge that that's just not how it's going to go down. Do you see the same responses from Catholics as you do from Protestants? No. Pentecostals and other non-Pentecostal evangelical churches tend to be in poorer neighborhoods and be more prolific in poorer neighborhoods. And gangs are strongest in poor, poor neighborhoods. And so the, this relationship between evangelical or Pentecostal churches and gangs is a little different than the, the relationship between Catholics and, and gangs. There are ministries that Catholics have for gangs, and they do try to intercede. But some of the more effective 
Catholic efforts do happen at that more policy, that more advocacy level, where they're trying to manage how national response should be taken uh, when they consider what's going on uh, in their in their countries uh, with respect to gangs. You know, I expected these pastors when I asked them, "What? Tell me about your ministry to gang members." Uh, I expected it to be like a like a typical church in the U.S. where we have oh well, we have a ministry to gang members, and we you know it's like something that a couple of people have a heart for and they do, uh, but. A lot of these pastors said to me, "No, that's pretty much our entire ministry. Yeah. I, mean, I mean, everyone in our like everyone in our community is touched by this, and and we are uh, we are entirely focused on reaching out to gang members or ex gang members or whatnot." So I, I wonder uh, if if there are some lessons that uh, that the that the church in El Salvador maybe offers the broader world about how to combat, how to curb gang violence, how to combat gangs. There's been much said about how some of the some of the preeminent Salvadoran gangs, the MS-13, for example, were actually sort of, in many ways, a byproduct of of sort of hardline uh, tactics to fight gangs in the U.S., which then sort of ended up uh, as we as we jailed and deported gang members. They actually sort of returned to the to El Salvador, found a place where they could flourish, and the problem you know became greater than ever. Uh, yeah, so I wonder, in contrast to that, if, if there are some lessons that the church uh, might offer us. Or one of the reasons I respect pastors in these communities so much is because they stay there. And I think just resilience, um, an ability to live incarnationally, an ability to understand that this is a culture of violence and that we are still lights in these communities. I think there's some real lessons um, in integrity and how to walk in faith. Um, I would be lying if I thought that the evangelical churches had figured out how to solve the gang problems. I think we probably kind of need to just know more of the historical context that got them into the status quo. I don't know exactly how far you want to go back, but I'm assuming that most of our listeners don't know a lot about El Salvador and politics. So feel free to assume that we don't know a lot and go from there. <laughs> um, maybe sort of good starting place would be the Civil War. I, a lot of Americans are aware that there was a very bloody civil war uh, in El Salvador in the 1980s. Um, I think the precise dates were from 1979 to 1992, but there was an awful lot of violence in the 1970s as well. And that was not really uh, a gang-related violence. Uh, in fact, gangs weren't really a conversation uh, at that point in time. It was only after the war ended that gangs started to sort of appear in the Salvadoran context. And there was this problem where Salvadorans in Los Angeles were forming gangs. And are these many people who fled during the Civil War? Yes. Okay. So in fact, that that's another good part to pick up. Before the Civil War in El Salvador, there were very few Salvadorans living in the U.S., um, the reason why the migration pattern started was partly because the world was becoming a smaller place. Globalization was happening, but also this this was a kickstart for migration, the people fleeing violence from the war. And so when poor people got to Los Angeles, there's a MS-13 is Mara Salvatrucha or Salvadoran gang, uh, and they felt they had to form some sort of collective experience as Salvadorans to ward off the other national ethnicities that were sort of represented in those communities. And then that was exported back to El Salvador. It was a lag time of maybe a decade or so uh, before gangs really came on to the national scene as a major social problem. And the reason that they were able to do that, I believe, is because there is not effective governance in these communities. There's all kinds of problems that 
local community infrastructure cannot solve and national national infrastructure either cannot or will not solve. And so people have stepped in or have been able to sort of step into these informal spaces. And now they uh, they enforce order of a certain type in these communities. Can someone say briefly about how American drug policy has changed what that situation looks like in El Salvador? I think gangs and drugs are often connected. In El Salvador, gangs are sort of at this level uh, that's sort of almost below the trafficking, drug trafficking. They do have drugs. They do take drugs. Uh, they can provide some drugs, but there's such small quantities for such poor people that major drug trafficking just doesn't doesn't matter to them. The market's too small for them. And so there are cartels uh, that manage these sort of transnational drug trafficking uh, issues that don't bother with the gangs. These gangs are uh, operating on a shoestring. They're not really getting rich from what they do. It's more about power and pride and control of their own lives. Wow. This episode is brought to you by Preaching Today. Are you tired of chasing down quality sermon illustrations? Need fresh ideas for helping your message connect? Each week, Preaching Today adds fresh content to our database of over 14,000 editor-screened illustrations. Quickly find the right story that will bring your message to life and help your people move closer to God. Get started today at preachingtoday.com. We've talked a lot about evangelicals that are in El Salvador. I'm wondering what's the, been the relationship between the American evangelical church and El Salvador starting from the 1970s as well? The 1970s is about when we saw a real opening to the evangelical movement in El Salvador. There had been evangelical and Pentecostal missionaries in El Salvador since the beginning of the 20th century, but the growth was very, very little. Many people would estimate that in 1970, there was maybe 3% of the national population that were evangelicals, but that that really blossomed. So by 1980, we're talking about maybe 10 to 15%. Uh, another decade later, we're talking about 20, 25%. And today, uh, the best uh, surveys tell us that it's probably north of, certainly north of 35%, certainly north of 35%. And so many Salvadorans are now evangelical Pentecostals. They are uh, brothers and sisters in Christ with the evangelical movement that are here. Uh, Many are in the most powerful denomination or assemblies of God. There is a sort of an indigenous denomination called Elim. That's very, they're very prominent as well as a Baptist church that has linkages to some Baptists, but mostly informal linkages to some Baptists in the United States. Have there been times when you would say American evangelicals over here have also tried to influence the politics of El Salvador? Yes, uh, I would say that. That happened in the war. Evangelicals did tend to side on one side of the war uh, in the 1980s. And now I would say that evangelicals have spoken in favor of a sort of a reduced level of number of immigrants in the United States. Uh, and that's certainly impacting this this current conversation. How would you guys kind of describe the faith of the Salvadorian Americans that are here in the United States and the Salvadorian nationals that are here as well? Uh, that's a tricky question. It's uh, obviously it's always uh, fraught to make generalizations about about large groups of people. But uh, the reporting that I've done, we, you know, we found lots of strong, uh, vibrant Salvadoran evangelical Pentecostal churches in the United States that probably in in many ways look a lot like. Uh, 
Salvadoran um, evangelical Pentecostal churches in El Salvador. Um, similar theologies, similar worship styles, even in, in many ways, similar ways of seeing the world. I think when we see, as we do in many immigrant communities, uh, we see these sort of transnational connections between Christians, he, uh, between churches here in the United States and churches back in their country of origin. Salvadorans are a little bit unique in that they seem to have extra strong transnational connections between between uh, Salvadoran churches in the United States and, and in El Salvador. Uh, we definitely saw that to the point where uh, many of the pastors and just people in these churches are in daily contact, regular contact with congregations back home, so to speak. Uh, they coordinate they coordinate missions trips, they coordinate fundraising, ministry events, uh, certainly at an informal, small-scale level. Again, we're not talking necessarily on enormous denominational levels, but uh, there were strong connections between the two. Yeah, I would agree with that. Um, I think one of the amazing things, and, and your article really pointed this out wonderfully, is how well the linkages last as as immigrants from El Salvador come to the United States, they just stay so connected to their families and their homes and their local churches. I was in this very remote community along the coast in El Salvador in November, and I talked to a Church of God pastor there. And I said, uh, you know, are the folks who left this community and are now living in the States, are they still connected here? And he said, absolutely. You know, they help us. They do send some offerings to us to help us with our ministries here. And, uh, you know, we have a day in the year where we sort of celebrate their presence among us. And this has just been a, a community building experience uh, that, that is not lost, even though they're living in a place that, you know, that is not here anymore. And so I think that this, these connections are really edifying, they're supportive, they build up the local churches there, um, and as you pointed out, they provide a ministry outlet for Salvadorans here um, and really give them a, a wonderful heart for international missions. What do you think has enabled this strong linkage and connection? Well, the, the enabling factors are the ability to partly to send money, to, to, to communicate, phone conversations, Skype, these kinds of things. You just are able to stay in contact in ways that you never have before. But also there is a sense of community. And the sense of community is amplified many times over if you're part of a local congregation, a local church. If you grew up in a local church uh, in El Salvador and you know the pastor, uh, your family's still there, your neighbors are still there, you want to stay connected um, and you want to be perceived as someone who is helping that local community that provides meaning for people here as well as benefits for, for people there. Stephen, I'm I'm wondering if there's also too a sense uh, with some groups of a stronger connection because that temporary protected status enables more or less free travel inter internationally uh, and visit family, friends, churches. Whereas as someone who are, who are here uh, with an undocumented status uh, is not free to travel back and forth. They're free to travel back and forth a little bit more uh, as opposed to someone who is not with that status. Yes, that's absolutely true. In fact, I know of a case uh, of, of a Salvadoran woman uh, who did not have this privilege. Uh, she thought that her papers were ready. She's the wife of a pastor. Her family has strong campus crusade connections, uh, and the pastor felt called to go to a church in California. So they moved up with their children, and she was admitted at that point to the U.S., and then her mother got very ill, and so she flew back to El Salvador to be with her during that time. And then when she tried to get back to her family in L.A., she was... Um, stopped in LAX, uh, and she was told, Dan, you cannot come in at this point. Your papers are not actually in order. She was sent back to El Salvador. Um, and so they've had to negotiate 
whether their children and the and the husband will actually go back to El Salvador. If she she's sort of trying to figure out how to get her papers organized, and so when you have the ability to make those those flights, then you can keep those relationships. Uh, you can be involved in people's lives. Um, you can support local churches. Uh, it's a very enabling factor. We were going to go by percentages. What percentage of churches, especially Protestant churches, have some sort of U.S. connection, would you say? I would say some kind of U.S. connection. You're pretty close to 100%. So what is this going to mean then if you know many of these churches which are run, presumably some of them are under people who have temporary protected status, are not working in the U.S. anymore and sending money back. It would be horrific, not just at the church level, but at the country level. I I believe the numbers are that last year there's about four and a half billion dollars worth of remittances sent from the U.S. uh, to to El Salvador. And that accounts for close to 17% of their GDP. This is the largest single import, if we can call it that, that El Salvador has. And that would pretty much probably ruin the Salvadoran economy. So it would now not all Salvadorans are under this TPS status. Not all that money would go away, but it would take a significant chunk out of that. And it would cause economic hardships in direct and indirect ways throughout the country. And because churches are such a prominent part of the community there and such a prominent part of the relationships that people have between these two countries, they would be particularly affected. And I think you would definitely see that they would have to curtail ministries and outreach that they would they are currently doing. What type of conversations have you seen among your Salvadorian friends and those that you research with as the Trump administration has been ending these um, different kind of immigration statuses? To this point, I think people have been watching it and wondering where it's going to go. Uh, I did have a pastor tell me that that he thought that the Salvadoran government was being more active in rounding up youths that they thought were in gangs um, and incarcerating them, and um, that that may not necessarily be the most helpful way to address the gang issue there. But the fact that such a high percentage of Salvadorans live in the States and that this is a lifestyle that is now decades old, there seems to be a disbelief that a dramatic change would be affected by the Trump administration to this point. And I think that there still is this idea that, well, TPS has been suspended. Um, Maybe this is just a political maneuver. We'll figure this out. uh, And our lifestyles won't be as dramatically affected as this actually could affect them. And I think that's that's my impression of where people are at this particular moment. So when we were chatting before the podcast, you mentioned that this is not the first time that there has been TPS extended to Salvadorians and presumably also ended. Yeah. So when the war was going on in the 80s, uh, there was these sort of these refugees that were coming uh, and local churches here were finding ways to house refugees. It was called the sanctuary movement. And there were a number of denominations that were involved, but they recognized that the U.S. government wasn't granting them any sort of formal access to the country. And so the American Baptist churches um, activated a sort of a, a court initiative to in that the long and short of it was that they actually got TPS because of what American Baptist churches and some other denominations came together to do. And so that really alleviated some of the pain and suffering that uh, is accompanied by coming undocumented to a different country with no resources and, and really no, nowhere to turn. If I recall, we, we had an interview 
that we ran last year with someone who was talking about the new sanctuary movement. But in the interview that we did, I think it was with Alexis Salvatierra, she mentioned that kind of the idea behind the sanctuary movement is this idea that, yes, people may be breaking the law in this case, crossing in illegally, but that it would be almost like cruel and unusual punishment to send them back where they might face almost certain death. And that was the kind of like biblical theology that was used to articulate what these churches were doing. I think that's really an important uh, case uh, or an important point to make. Uh, It was certainly true during the war that if you were to send these people back, you would be sending them into war zones and that that it's that's not good for survival. Right. I mean, it just doesn't make sense if you're trying to help people uh, with their basic needs um, and with with continuing their lives. And the situation now is maybe not quite as dire as during the war, uh, but the indices of violence are such that El Salvador vies with Honduras as the most violent country in the world that's not at war. In fact, I think there are some countries who are in sort of these low-level warfare situations who actually have lower indices of violence than El Salvador. So so we are still in a situation where if we send people back to communities where they don't know people, they haven't been there for two decades, it would be putting them at risk uh, as well as forcing them to leave a place where they've learned how to operate economically and socially, uh, and they wouldn't have those tools, at least at the beginning, uh, when they return to their country. It's certainly not uncommon. In fact, it's extremely uh, tragically common to, to hear stories. You talk to immigration lawyers of uh, family, entire families, uh, Salvadoran families that are here and they, uh, with stories uh, such as, you know, they came one at a time because a, f- a family member was was threatened, extorted, fled, uh, and then the gang just turned to the next to the next family member, did the same thing. They fled and they said, well, okay, we'll, we'll go after your brother now and your sister until one by one you have an entire family of five or six people who have who've come uh, just because... You know they, they were they were fearing their lives and they didn't have resources to pay uh, the extortion. Another another interesting component of all this is uh, it's it's complex, but you know this idea of returning back to a home that was never your home it it, it actually extends to some of these gang members too. Uh, it's not uncommon uh, to hear stories of gang members who who are uh, arrested and, and maybe deported back to El Salvador and they return to a country where they don't even speak Spanish. So the only family they have and the only culture they know is effectively the culture of their of their gang, often MS-13. And so they, they instantly find a home uh, among their fellow gang members there, uh, many uh, many of whom are bilingual because they because they might have might have done some time in the States. Yeah, so this idea of returning, sending people back to a place that's not their own home uh, certainly applies to sort of the perpetrators of this violence as well as to the victims of the violence. A lot of these gang members, I've talked about the violence that they inflict on other people. They're just kids. So many of them are just kids. They're 13, 14, 15, 16 years old. And, you know, many of them went into the gang and they don't want to be there. You know, they don't want to be doing these things that now they need to do or else they'll face the consequences of the gang themselves. They are victims and they may be creating other victims, but they're just kids in so many cases. Yeah, and I think that matters because uh, it... What it, some of the, the Salvadoran pastors I spoke with when we say, what does the church offer? How does the church minister to these, you know, not, not exclusively young men, sometimes women, but you generally young men. And the pastors all said, we offer them a home, a family they don't have. I mean, they have, uh, in many cases, they have no family here, or, or the only family they know in in, uh, in this case is, is the gang. And some of the pastors said, and I'm not familiar enough with gang lore to know uh, 
you know, to which how, to what degree this is true. But some of the pastors told me there's only two ways you can get out of a gang, either by death or if a church, if, if a local church essentially adopts you. Uh, I, I mean, essentially you become a Christian, you become a part of this uh, church, of this congregation. I don't know if, if you heard similar stories, Stephen, or not. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, and I think uh, hearing that, I mean, I was struck. I never would have would have thought to think of it and uh, to phrase it in such sort of binary options. But the pastors were very clear that this is the way it works. I have listened to a number of podcasts that have been about some of these children who have crossed the border by themselves, and I think that just hearing from their parents this sense of desperation of like how quickly they can get their kids over there um, to just try to be away from the violence has kind of opened my eyes to how much it is, as well as a New Yorker article that came out a couple weeks ago about MS-13 and about the problem that that is currently in Long Island um, that is being faced in Salvadorian Americans that live over there. Anyway, it's far more complicated than we have time for the scope of this podcast. But yes, for sure, the, the brutality there um, is, is feels really scary. I was actually wondering, I know we, we've talked about some of the violence there, but could you just provide a couple more examples um, of what that looks like. I know sometimes we use words like violence and war and kidnapping even, but that doesn't necessarily always like register on our consciousness of what that looks like. Yeah. It seems like uh, removal of limbs has become one of the ways in which gangs have decided to enforce their law or their rule in, in, in communities. And so I've been reading on quite a number of accounts where either a hand is cut off, an arm is cut off, and this is basically the idea is we're warning you. We could kill you. We're just going to remove a limb this time. And next time you won't be so lucky. And so that's one of the ways that violence is inflicted. One of the less physical forms of violence is this idea of surveillance. Uh, and that is absolutely pervasive in so many of these communities. And people know that they're being watched by gangs. Uh, and they have to conduct their lives in certain ways. Um, and just the mental and emotional stress that that creates on people's lives is, is very, very difficult. Uh, I've been in situations where I want to talk to gang members. Ah, no, I didn't want to talk to gang members. I want to talk to people who may have been victimized by gangs. Uh, and I had to meet them in places where they already were going to be. Uh, and we had to talk in very hushed voices so that uh, we just didn't, we could have you know, been under surveillance. We, and likely people were being under surveillance. We just didn't want people to know that we were talking about things that maybe they didn't want us to talk about. Women are not maybe as prominent a part of the conversation as they need to be. And wives of gang members, uh, as well as family members of uh, gang members, are people who are retaliated against. Oftentimes, a, a male gang member who is going to be killed is also killed with his wife. Oftentimes, Women are beaten. Women are member gang members as well. Um, and sometimes women inflict violence on other women. Women are uh, reported on to other gang members. And so this is, a, this is an area I think that is understudied and we need to know more about. But it's clear that women are being victimized by gangs. Although when you see corpses in the streets, it's more frequently men who, who are found as, as dead people in the streets. Thank you for sharing that. What will take you to El Salvador this week? So I'm continuing my, my research. Uh, I actually, my research project is called um, Religion, Poverty, and Development. I'm hoping to get to some of the good news side of this with uh, how development happens in these communities. And I didn't actually set out to study gangs. But as Andy was mentioning before, like if you're talking about poverty, you actually 
are talking about gangs in El Salvador. It's a security issue, uh, and churches in the communities know that, um, and people who go to study poverty have to find that out, as I have done. <laughs> so I continue to do that research. I'll be talking to uh, both evangelical and Catholic actors um, in these communities, as well as uh, state development actors and people who are poor, uh, who have been victims of this kind of violence, and who are able to tell tell their stories uh, about what's happening there, what churches mean to them, and what um, what it might mean to escape from these kinds of situations. Thank you so much. This was a really great conversation. All right, now is the time of the show we call Precious Moments, which is when we get to know everyone that's in the room a little bit better through hearing what is bringing people joy. All right, Andy, you ready to go? The risk of being entirely predictable as the father of a five-year-old and a two-year-old, uh, pretty much consistently my children bring me joy in addition to great tribulation on a daily basis. But uh, so, yeah, small thing. Yesterday, I was having trouble focusing at work because my wife was uh, texting me throughout the day with uh, excerpts from conversations she was overhearing between my five-year-old son and his playmates. He, he discovered his new f- his new superhero favorite of the week is Captain America. And he discovered that Captain, the word Captain is a synonym for boss. So he said, really, we could just call him Boss America. And so I think I want to be Boss America. It's direct quote from my son. So things like that bring me joy on a daily basis. Do you feel like you have had a role in inspiring him to those ambitions? Uh, with all due respect, my son, who might hear this someday years from now, he doesn't need help aspiring to be the boss. He, he gets it pretty, he understands that concept naturally. All right. Okay. So you abdicate your responsibility. I see how it That's is. That's right. That's exactly right. Are you online at all? Yes, I am indeed on Twitter, though I sometimes try to hide it. I am I'm at Andy R. Olson with an E. Awesome. All right, Steve? Yeah. So I'm also a father of three. Uh, I have 12, nine, and six-year-olds, all girls. And my 12-year-old, her very big Christmas present this year was she got an Alexa. And so we've been playing with Alexa for quite a bit, almost annoyingly so at this point. All right. What have you found out about Alexa? Please tell us. <laughs> well, it turns out you can make lists on Alexa. And, uh, and so my 12-year-old decided she was going to make an awesome list. And so the first three things on her awesome list were brownies, her guinea pig, and herself. It's the same three things on my awesome list. <laughs> but what gave me joy was that mom and dad have now made the awesome list. Nice. Well done. So Steve. what happens? You just say like, Alexa, please read the awesome list. Is that what Alexa does? Exactly. Yes. Please tell me what's, I think it's please tell me what's on my awesome list. Yeah. <laughs> so for parents of young children out there, take heart. Give it 12 years and you too might make the awesome list. That's right. Exactly. <laughs> Any other things you can do on an Alexa? I'm just curious now. Ooh, well, there's lots of things that Alexa doesn't know okay. uh, that's very frustrating for my daughters. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, they, she, she gets to play songs by, I think Ellie Holcomb is the uh, <laughs> favorite songwriter for Alexa right now in our house. <laughs> well, that's great. Cool. Are you online at all? Do you have a website? I don't have much of an online presence, unfortunately. I tweet occasionally at Steve Offit, um, but uh, I'm kind of a social media failure at this point in my life. <laughs> All right. Fair enough. But you're on the awesome list, so yes, I guess I it works out. <laughs> my precious moment this week has just been hanging out with our coworkers who normally are in different spots of the country, but made the journey to Carol's Dream this week. And we've gone to dinner at Mark's house. We've gone to an escape room. I had Colombian food with some of them last night. Anyway, it's just been 
a, a bunch of great, great conversations. Um, obviously, it's fun to do the stuff that's outside of work, but it's been also really enriching to have them in our work meetings. And obviously, video conferencing is awesome, and it does a lot of wonders to bring our team together. But I don't think there's anything like just kind of having the water cooler conversations and having them be a part of it. So it's an awesome way to start the year here. People can find me on Twitter at M-E-P-A-Y-N-L. That is it for us this week. Thank you for everyone for listening to another episode of Quick to Listen. Again, the best ways to show your support are by subscribing to our magazine at orderct.com slash quick to listen or by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts and telling us how much you like or don't like the podcast. This podcast is produced by myself and Richard Clark and Cray Allred, and we will see you all next week. Bye.